Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia's Department of Human Services Commissioner Candace Bro stops by. She'll talk about priorities for managing the sprawling state agency that oversees a lot, everything from the state's foster care system to enrollment for programs like Medicaid. Plus, our Paycheck to Paycheck series continues as we introduce our first featured household. We'll meet a woman from Milledgeville, Georgia, who will talk about managing the household's finances. All those conversations coming up. But first this, U.S. soldiers from Georgia and other states are deploying to Europe amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some with barely a week's notice. Dozens of soldiers from the Army's 3rd Infantry Division, based at Fort Stewart, Georgia, boarded a chartered flight Wednesday to Germany. Now, the 3rd Infantry is sending almost 4,000 soldiers overseas as part of a U.S. buildup of more than 12,000 troops in Europe aimed at deterring further aggression by Russia. In other news, a major mental health care and substance use disorder services reform bill is moving forward at the state capitol. Yesterday, Georgia House Speaker David Roston made a rare appearance at a committee meeting to push for the bill. This is just the beginning of what I expect will be a multi-year conversation. We did not get in this place we are today overnight, and we will not get out overnight, but I can't think of a better big first step to take than this bill. The Mental Health Parity Act is expected to get a vote in the Georgia House next week. The measure would make health insurers treat mental health and substance use disorder the same as physical health care when it comes to provisions like co-pays and pre-authorization. A federal law already mandates that payment parity. Now, Georgia ranks near the bottom of all state when it comes to access for mental health services. Well, speaking of state lawmakers, it appears the path to loosening gun laws in Georgia is rolling right along. Sam Greenglass reports Governor Brian Kemp praised those bills this term as he rallied with gun rights activists this week. Sponsored by the gun rights group GA2A, this rally drew a crowd of maybe 75 on a sunny weekday. This week, the Georgia Senate passed what supporters call constitutional carry. It would make permits to carry a handgun optional in Georgia. Kemp told rallygoers to gear up for backlash. He cast this as a fight against Democrats and the media, saying they also lined up against a restrictive abortion bill and sweeping elections law. And without question, they'll be back with more of the same as we stand up for the rights of law-abiding Georgians this year. We know we have a fight on our hands here in Georgia. I'm proud to be in that fight with you all, and I will not waver. The governor has made gun legislation a centerpiece of his reelection as he faces a tough primary challenge from Trump-backed candidate David Perdue. Kemp needs to convince conservatives in the May 24th primary that he's the one who can beat Democrat Stacey Abrams. Sam Gringlass, WABE News. And finally, will Matt Ryan be a, in a Falcons uniform when the season starts later this year? Well, Falcons GM Terry Fontenot and head coach Arthur Smith talked about the Falcons QB this week during their media briefing during their pre-combine press conference. Now, Smith's answers were interesting when asked about trading the veteran quarterback or any player for that matter. Depends what the offer is. I mean, like I said, like it's like the old Don Corleone. Like, if they give you an offer you can't refuse, I think you got to take it. But that's with every player. I'm sure that... Somebody, you know, you ask Terry, if somebody wanted to give a bag of balls for me, he may, he may you know, push, push me out the door. So, <laughs> Okay. Of course, with Don Corleone, there usually was no negotiating. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. 
Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues from WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's Department of Human Services is responsible for a lot. The agency oversees the state's foster care system, investigates child and elder abuse, determines who qualifies for assistance programs like SNAP and Medicaid, and requires, and I do mean requires, and maybe even needs more than hundreds of millions of dollars a year to operate. And like all state agencies, DHS has to conduct all that work while navigating the challenges of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Like I said, it's a lot to take care of. Commissioner Candace Brose was tapped by Governor Brian Kemp to manage this agency back in September of last year and truly has had to hit the ground running. She joins us now to talk talk about how things have been going so far and plans and top priorities for DHS in the year ahead. And Commissioner Brose, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm glad to be with you this afternoon, Rose. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you this. Do you think folks have a general idea of what you all are responsible for and, and like many DHS departments throughout this throughout the, the nation, but it's a huge agency here. I think for most Georgians, um, people will recognize the Division of Family and Children's Services. You know, <laughs> DFACS is an acronym that everyone pretty readily um, recognizes. And so that's one of the divisions in the Department of Human Services. Uh, but we do have two others. We have uh, Child Support Services and we have um, aging services. And so those are lesser known, but they also do really important work. Um, and you're right, this is, a, this is a large agency with a lot of responsibility in state government. Roughly how many employees, staffers, folks do y'all have? So ours is one of the largest in state government. It, it certainly has the largest footprint across mm-hmm. the state. So we've got, right now, we have about 8,300 employees um, that's that's with the COVID pandemic and some workforce challenges. Um, so it, before COVID, we were looking closer to between nine and 10,000 employees. And across the state, we have 233 office locations. So we've got a presence in every county. And in some cases, we've got multiple offices in a county. That was my next question. Georgia has 159 counties. You all have some sort of presence in every county. That's right. That's right. And that's because of the work that we do. We need to be accessible to Georgians. We're going to get to you um, speaking to state lawmakers in just a moment. But earlier on, when I was listening to agency chiefs talk about the challenges of retention and attracting employees, and we heard this from GBI Director Vic Reynolds. I know Commissioner Gary Black talked about it for his agriculture department. I imagine it's the same thing for you all, attracting and retention. That's right. Certainly is. And, you know, every every state agency has got these challenges right now because the economy is is red hot. The private sector is incredibly competitive um, and it's certainly for some of our entry level positions too. you know, the salaries are are extremely competitive. The good part about my agency that's maybe different from others in some aspects is um, people are really drawn to do these these jobs, especially child protective services and adult protective services because that's what they've wanted to do their entire lives. That's the focus of their education. And, and so we do have, um, we have an interesting take on that part of it, but like others, we, we too are battling the same constraints. Because of the pandemic and like, again, everyone, you all had to shift. Now you were appointed, you you can put that on your resume, appointed during a pandemic. Not a lot of folks can do that. But what has, what has that shift meant for you all since the time you've been here? Is, are you all getting back to normal sort of, or are you still in that shift mode? So we're, we're still in a hybrid mode. Um, but I think, you know, from my perspective, and fortunately, I have the the strong support of the first family on this. You know, we have got to be creative as state government to retain these employees, and and that means being innovative in the work model moving forward. So I'm a I'm a believer in teleworking. I think that's been a fantastic 
model. And the reason I believe that is because there are good, solid ways to watch accountability and productivity. So for my workforce, I'm trying to build out a more permanent telework solution for everyone, which also makes sense given the public health considerations we're going to continue to face in the years ahead. That gives people a lot of flexibility. It helps us retain them. Let me ask you this, Commissioner, because telework for some, depending on what their job duties are, but for folks who have to, for social workers, for folks who have to be out in the community and, and checking on folks, that obviously won't work. That's right. And we've never, we've, that's something that's really important. I've been wanting to, to emphasize, especially to legislators, um, even though we're dealing with the, with the, the effects of COVID and have been for some time, when it comes to adult protective services and child protective services, we've never stopped doing emergency visits to go Mm -hmm. actually in person, check on people when we get emergency complaints. We've had some flexibilities in other ways though, for those workers. Obviously we don't want a bunch of people in an office together just for the sake of being in that office Mm -hmm. So that we avoid, you know, spread and exposure, but they are still going to court. They're still checking on families. They are still doing those critical functions and that never stopped. Tell, take our listeners through some of the challenges for that aspect of your department, because folks are used to having social workers come check on them. Also placing kids, the pandemic due to measures that were in place or maybe homes not being available for right. kids that needed emergency uh, sheltering in a foster in the foster care, mm-hmm. is there still a backlog? What's that process like now? Well, with COVID, of course, we rely on a um, on a spectrum of providers to help us take care of children in foster care, and that either that's a a, a kinship caregiver, a relative for the child, or mm-hmm. it's a foster family, or in some circumstances, it's a it's a congregate care provider or a group home. Um, and so, especially for the, for the group homes, they have really struggled also with workforce challenges. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if one person is, is positive for COVID or if there's exposure, it really can take a lot of staff out of um, the facility that they're at. So we have seen some of those providers have to take placements and options offline temporarily while they, while they deal with that. Fortunately, um, the state has been um, offering some emergency staffing to get through that and really weather that storm. So that's been a huge resource for them recently. How many kids do you suspect, and if you can give me a number, are in Georgia's foster care system in terms of actually being in the system as, as I don't want to say, you know, by the state, you know, in terms of who has parental guidance, or, or, or but how many kids are in the system right now? So we have a pretty steady number of around 10,500 children in foster care in Georgia. Um, We have a few hundred of um, youth who are 18 to 21. They're in extended foster Mm -hmm. care services. Um, We have a a few thousand who are placed with their relatives temporarily. And so that, that is a pretty good um, estimate. It's always around that number in Georgia for who, who we have defects involvement with. We know the reports had indicated that because of the opioid crisis here in this nation, that that also was a direct correlation to so many kids having to go into the foster care system. As it relates to Georgia, we have that same. What's that that scenario like here? Same issues? Yes. Um, Something I, I think you know, we still have a lot of work to do to really follow these trends and nail things down before. And so I don't want to say anything that's, you know, too definitive at this point. We have a lot to learn from mm-hmm. the aftermath of and the ongoing effects of the opioid epidemic. But I will say it does mean that in recent years, we have seen more and more children who have complex medical needs, complex behavioral health needs um, that come into custody we do see more now than than previously where families will relinquish their rights or abandon their children to state custody. And especially mm-hmm. in Northwest Georgia and West Georgia, those are areas that we see more of this than other parts of the state. Northwest Georgia and West Georgia. Yes. Are you all having to ramp up then services in that, in those regions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because, 
for those children, if they have complex needs, we need to make sure that they're in the right setting. Um, if they're with a foster family, that we are surrounding them with the services that they need in that setting so that they, they don't risk disrupting mm -hmm. that placement. We want them to stay with a loving foster family as long as we can to avoid further trauma. Same thing for if they're in a congregate care setting or a group home, we have to make sure that we're really surrounding them with all of the right therapies. So that is going to remain a challenging part of our job. Mm. Your agency also oversees the SNAP, which is a supplemental nutri nutrition assistance program. Uh, folks may commonly refer to it as food stamps. There have been a lot right. of changes to these benefits because of the, of the pandemic. With those changes, did you all see a lot more folks, commissioner, needing to apply for these SNAP benefits during the pandemic? Absolutely, we did. Also, just more people eligible. Um, you know, in Georgia, we have an integrated system. So we, in my agency, we have a workforce that, that handles Medicaid eligibility and SNAP, aka food stamp eligibility, um, temporary cash assistance eligibility, several other programs and because of some flexibilities the federal government was able to offer through congressional action, we, we did have more people on the rolls. That will start to phase out. I mean, mm -hmm. we are looking to the feds to see when the emergency declaration expires, and that will change a lot about our, our operations. But right now, um, we still have those, those higher numbers. I want to move on to uh, another area that you all oversee, which is in terms of eligibility for programs. And you, you know this word, Medicaid. <laughs> you, you say that word at state capital, <laughs> folks start running. But normally, right. <laughs> people's eligibility is checked on a regular rolling basis. Um, and that's been put on hold, I think, during the pandemic. But it's going to start yes. again with the, when the federal pandemic public health emergency ends. So for your agency, what happens when you all start checking for eligibility again? And then what is your agency doing to prepare for all of this? So what we're doing is, is trying to make sure that we are properly communicating this ahead of time to as many people as possible, clearly communicating that so people know what to expect. So they're but not also, surprised. when That's right. Okay. That's right. So that no one is surprised, but we're also trying to make sure that our processes are fair and they're consistent across the board. So we're, we're looking at some technology to make sure that we're taking any human error out of that decision-making as, as much as possible. Um, and we, we anticipate that we're going to have a smooth uh, process through the rest of the year once that declaration expires. We're really trying to pull out all the stops to be ready. I've heard so many commissioners and, and agencies say, say this is the plan that we have in place. This is the plan that we want to work. There are certain things that could pop up that you can't plan for. As the commissioner, you take full responsibility. Does that fall on you? Is it fair to say it falls on you? If someone is kicked off, that shouldn't have been, maybe that's not the best word, kicked off, but someone is, is moved off that, then they should have remained. I mean, how are you going to ensure that that doesn't happen? Or is that an unfair question to say that you, you can't ensure that? I don't think that's an unfair question. I think what I would, of course, it is my responsibility, but I would ask this, um, you know, we're all dealing with a and I hate to say unprecedented, how many times have people said that term? 622. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, I would ask for a little bit of grace, right? Uh, we're going to, we are, we have a great workforce. They are working hard under um, a lot of stress because we have low numbers right now. That's reality. But we are going to put everything into it to make sure we do this the right way. Um, if we make a mistake, we're going to own it and we're going to do what we can to fix it. And that's just about the best that we could do, I think. Um, and so I will ultimately be responsible, but I, I think we're going to put uh, the right resources into making it successful. Are you all in the process then? I want to make sure I understand you clearly and then the listeners as well. So you all are in the process of maybe determining how many folks could lose this coverage under this federal emergency? Because that's going to end, we know, at some point. Do you have any that's idea? Right. Um, so at this point, it's, it's still hard to say. It's several hundred thousand. Um, I will... I'll point out, though, that we do have good partners at the federal level. Every state is grappling with this. And so our federal counterparts are really trying to help every state prepare for these changes. And there are still some maybe some new processes in the works and flexibility that they'll offer. So that is all that all remains to be seen. But we are thankful that they're helping us in that regard. Because several hundred thousand commissioner, that's a lot. It's a lot of folks. It is. 
It is. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Commissioner Candace Bro. She's head of Georgia's Department of Human Services. And I want to go back to when we were talking about um, the foster kids, because there's this term. I don't like the term, but it's called hoteling. And that is and maybe some say it's unfair to call it the practice because maybe it implies it's the intention of putting kids in the foster care system in hotels and offices when there are no homes or families to place them at. And we understand that. You talked about this with lawmakers during the budget hearings early this year, that all those children have been formerly in homes and then removed. I want to take a listen, and then I want you to be able to put this in more context for our listeners. Since July, when I was appointed interim defects director, and when the state was averaging 50 to 60 children in a hotel or office on any given day, we've prevented at least 60 children from ever being hoteled. The Monday before Thanksgiving, we had 70 children temporarily placed in an officer hotel. We'd managed to get down to the 40s before we saw that jump back up, but in only a week and a half, we got that number down to the 30s. The first time it's been that low in years. Unfortunately, the Delta and Omicron variants have temporarily sidelined the effectiveness of our strategies, but we're working closely with the Department of Community Health and the governor's office to secure emergency staffing for providers which have been forced to take placements offline. Once we address this temporary staffing issue, we'll get back to aggressively identifying better placements for our kids and free up bandwidth to plan for more preventative work, keeping more children out of foster care altogether. Commissioner Bruce, how many kids in the foster care system are currently in this situation in terms of having to Seek, have shelter in hotels and offices right now. And then I want you to explain to our listeners why that is. So right now in the state of Georgia, we have about 46 children that are either temporarily placed in a hotel or they're in a defects office. And that number is still much lower than where we were last July, whenever I moved over into this, to the defects director, DHS commissioner role. Um, it's something we continue to aggressively tackle. So what we're trying to do is figure out a better way to, instead of spending money toward a hotel, and this seems very common sense, I, I'm, prob- I'm, I'm definitely oversimplifying, but, but instead of sending, spending money on a hotel, we're trying to free up that and put that money toward the therapies that they need in a better placement. And so that's going to continue to be our strategy. strategy. It is working. Um, of course, on any given day, we never know the amount of children that come into foster care. So that's that's the ultimate variable question. A listener is saying, why are they here? Is it because you do not have enough available foster care homes for immediate placement? Is it is because these children are medically or behaviorally complex. Mm-hmm. They're typically teenagers. We typically get them because their parents abandon them to foster care or a judge orders them into foster care to access services. So it, Right off the bat, maybe a foster family is not going to be the right place for them because sure. they need to be surrounded with therapy. And there's no other option, huh? At least temporarily, there's not. You know, the state, um, look, every state, again, is dealing with this problem. Some of them are dealing sure. with it differently. Others have been sued over this. I, I wanted us to just go ahead and really directly own this issue and show what we're trying to do to mitigate it. So, it really is going to be a longer term effort of finding ways to tackle this issue preventatively, keeping children out of foster care. Once we can better address why parents feel like they need to abandon a child to foster care to get services, then we will not see as much of a hoteling and office placement problem. Actually, want to shift for a moment. I have a listener who says that Rose Defects requires a master's degree to be a social worker, and the starting pay is awful. And they say that, and that's why for the turnover. Um, let's talk about then work employees and and your budget. Do you have enough? Is it in the budget a line item that you want to increase the starting salaries? For social workers, because these are the folks that are meeting the meeting, need to meet the needs for the kids we just talked about and the elders. Mm-hmm. Is, is Georgia's pay competitive with other states? The, the national average is probably around $50,000 a year for a, an entry level social worker who's, mm-hmm. who's working with children, child welfare. Now, 
you know, that's that's also comparing to, you know, northeastern states where maybe the price of living is a little bit different than it is in the southeast. Right. Um, I will say, though, for the for your listener, one thing that's different about our workforce is that these individuals, they get a master's degree because they want to go into this line of work. It's not always just about pay. Now, pay is important, but it's not always about just pay. And um, there are a lot of things we can do to make their lives easier so they can do their jobs more effectively that pay alone will not answer. Our, one of our producers did some checking, and you correct us if we're wrong, um, but an entry-level social services specialist, someone who investigates child and elder abuse, is being offered starting $35,000 a year. That's about right. That's going to change, though, if, if the will of the legislature will support it. Well, I hope they're listening good... right now. <laughs> you need you need so you need that. Right. Right. Well, and, and look, this is a good time to give a shout out to to Governor Kemp. You know, he has been hearing the workforce challenges that state government has been facing. And that's with state government really rising to the challenge of dealing with COVID. Um, there's a $5,000 pay raise for all state employees. That is going to be a game changer for some of mine because they want to be social workers. Mm-hmm. That would be huge for them. It could amount to, you know, almost a 20% increase for some of my department entry-level workers. Speaking of Governor Brian Kemp, you have a wonderful relationship with him. You were get appointed to this post. Listen, some folks saying, wow, to be to oversee this agency some might have questioned your experience in that what do you say to folks who say wow how does commissioner candace bros get get to this level well i you know i my heart is in what this department does mm-hmm. I, I think that's what i've been trying to convey to people who are concerned about my experience and background I do try to put 115% into this job every single day. And the first family knew that this work mattered to me on a deeply personal level. One thing I try to share is that, you know, I have five cousins who were adopted out of defects custody. I have a stepfather who would do pro bono defects adoptions on the weekends, do all the paperwork for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the very early years of my life, you know, my mother, um, was raising two girls, my sister and I alone. And there are benefits and programs that my agency offers now that helped us survive. Mm -hmm. And so on a deeply personal level, this work means the world to me. And, you know, I'm still open to the criticism though. I think that's an important function of this job. I want to make sure we're doing everything we can to best serve Georgia families. Hey, I understand. I was a foster child. I'm I'm still the foster child as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. My parents got me when I was two. I was so cute, Commissioner. They couldn't just let me go. I understand the passion behind that. I did that. not know that. I understand the passion behind that. Before I let you go, describe your leadership style and how do you deal with criticism? My mantra, I guess, I try not to have mantras. Um, I try to be accessible to people. It doesn't matter what your job is in my agency. If you call me or send me an email, I'm going to call you back or email you back to make sure you know I'm, I'm hearing what you say. Uh, progress over perfection. We don't have to set everything aside to make something better just because we could do a more holistic approach. Of course, that'd be great if we can, right? But sometimes just a little technology improvement here or lifting a burden off of a county, um, you know, adult protective services office worker here, that those things over time add up. So those are the things that I try to do just to, to keep the needle moving mm-hmm. for our agency. What is your outlook for this agency a year from now when we bring you back and hopefully maybe the pandemic will be over? I don't know. And particularly as it relates to those those 46 kids you talked about, I'm sure they're at the top of your list. Mm-hmm. My goal is no, no kids in hotels or offices. None. Um, my goal is to make the continuum of care for any Georgian in this state as seamless as possible, whether you are a a, a brand new child or you're an elderly Georgian, I do not want any interaction with my agency to um, slow you down for what you need. And so we are 
doing everything we can to make that integration as seamless as possible. So you always have a good experience. And a year from now, I think that will really pay dividends. Is this a position you want to continue if there's a change in who our governor is after November? Look, the reality is I I do serve at the pleasure of the governor. Mm -hmm. Um, I am confident that the governor is going to win re-election. I believe in his leadership. He has he has done excellent work in his time. He's really weathered an impossible storm effectively. Um, but ultimately, anyone in my position, they they serve at the pleasure of the sitting governor. And so, you know, out of respect for the the gravity that the governor's office holds, I'll say, you know, if I'm meant to be here, I'm meant to be here. And if I'm not, then I'll make sure to leave this agency in a better condition for whomever um, takes over my job. Commissioner Candace Bros, head of Georgia's Department of Human Services. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for answering the questions. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. You too. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden said bringing down prices is his top priority. Here's a bit from his State of the State of, State of the Union address Tuesday. Too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. I get it. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. Look. Our economy roared back faster than almost anyone predicted. But the pandemic meant that businesses had a hard time hiring enough people because of the pandemic to keep up production in their factories. So you didn't have people making those beams that went into buildings because they were out. The factory was closed. The panic also disrupted the global supply chain. Factories close. When that happens, it takes longer to make goods and get them to the warehouses, to the stores, and go, prices go up. Look at cars last year. One-third of all the inflation was because of automobile sales. There weren't enough semiconductors to make all the cars that people wanted to buy. And guess what? Prices of automobiles went way up, especially used vehicles as well. And so we have a choice. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poorer. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. Well, and as, as I spoke with Mike Alexander with the Atlanta Regional Commission, he said, look, it doesn't really matter if you're making more money if everything costs more, right? Another challenge facing the region, it's hard to move from a low-wage job to one that pays more, something that we touched on just yesterday. I think a lot of us were caught off guard uh, with this current increase in inflation, it's particularly troubling for Metro Atlanta. It's driven by uh, transportation, fuel price increases. And for us, you know, we're finally starting to see wage increases here in Metro Atlanta in our low income worker uh, classifications for jobs, wages going up, but those are being eroded by these inflation increases, right? Transportation, food prices. Um, it's, It's hurting our our most vulnerable workers as they're trying to make up ground, right? And so, you know, Mike, also I think when folks hear, wow, well, you know, wages are increasing, but consider where they're, where they're increasing from still may not be because they were so low. I mean, look, if we want to talk about minimum wage, that's a whole other conversation. But considering where they started from and then where they are now, that's still just not enough. You think folks understand that? And so they get a little twisted. Oh, but we're hearing that, you know, wages are increasing. Well, it's good, but still, it's low. Yes, and I think you know this, Rose. We've been watching this a long time, not just during the pandemic, but before coming out of the Great Recession. Metro Atlanta's wages, compared to other metros, weren't increasing at the same rate as those other metros, and especially in the low-wage low uh, jobs. And that, that was critical for us, and we've been reporting on it because we know those are the households where we know you know, they're they're watching the high wage jobs, you know, big increases over that period and what people are making and they're they're falling further behind. And that's obviously very hard. 
And Mike, for listeners who may not understand, you just can't say, you just can't counter with the employment rate with the unemployment rate because folks may be unemployed. Folks could be employed, but it may not be in a, in a job that they really enjoy or one that's paying a, a decent wage. So I think sometimes people, when they think about the unemployment rate and the employment rate, they think, oh, they just counter each other. That's not exactly the case. No, it isn't. And one of the things that I've been looking at very closely reported by Brookings, if you're in a low wage sector, if you are a dishwasher and you do that job for 10 years, the likelihood that you'll ever leave that work is 1%, 1%. And so we're really focused in all of our workforce work, the state, the region, what we do at the ARC and trying to help people get the training they need to upskill and go to that higher wage work. And there are sectors where that absolutely can happen that have been strong for Metro Atlanta, like information. Mm-hmm. Well, I also want you to define for this, for our listeners, when we talk about job growth, we're not just talking about the addition of, oh, there are jobs that are available. Because those jobs that are available that have been vacant for a while, that doesn't necessarily, you don't want to really include that in your job growth. Because there's a reason that they're empty, because folks either don't want to go back to them or again, they were low wage jobs to begin with anyway. Right. And hospitality is a sector where it's been very hard for companies to backfill those positions because they have historically been so low wage. And this is a period where people are going to be looking for better jobs, right? The, the quit rate at the national level is the highest it's been in my charts, yeah. right? And there's more job openings right now than ever before in the United States. So yeah, people are definitely looking. Hmm. Mike Alexander from the Atlanta Regional Commission as our Paycheck to Paycheck series continues. Now up next, we'll get a sense of how these challenges are playing out for one household. We're back in a moment. And Close Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned during our Paycheck to Paycheck series, we've been following, we're going to be following households from various parts of the regions, see how they're making ends meet and the everyday financial challenges. And we've also been out and about asking the same question. Well, I'm living, I think, uh, life where for I've been very, we've been deliberate, our family, about um, cutting expenses and just kind of living below our means so that we have somewhat of a cushion. Well, today we're going to meet Jess, a community organizer and communications coordinator living in Milledgeville, Georgia. That's out east of Atlanta. Do not see me in email talking about Milledgeville is not east of Atlanta because we already had a big argument between my producers and myself. So deal with where I said it is. Uh, Jess lives with her wife and her pets. Jess, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks so much for having me here today. Let's begin here by going back. Can you recall, as you were growing up, did someone, and who was that someone, they talked to you about the importance of, let's say, budgeting and and saving? So growing up, the importance of that wasn't necessarily a conversation, but it was just a reality. Um, Couponing was a big game in my household. My mom was a couponer extraordinaire and had a very deliberate system of which grocery store she shopped at on which days based on whether it was double coupon day or buy one get one free day and I did grow up in Heard County which is uh, technically metro Atlanta but it's very rural and so we had to drive a county up to Mm. Carrollton to do our shopping so that was a a very deliberately planned outing that um, just based on the carefulness that all the decisions in the household were made off of, mm-hmm. um, that kind of financial reality was was just something that I recognized as a, a fact of life when you're a grown up. So now that you're a grown up, you're all grown up, you're making adult decisions. So you think about the work that you do, what you bring in um, with, along with your wife. Does that bring in enough to cover your monthly expenses? Our monthly expenses are covered um, for the time being because of the student loan pause. Ah. When when that pause ends, 
um, there's going to be a, a serious uh, situation and a deficit that we are going to have to address. What does that look like? Does it mean a reduction in the fancy pet food? Does it mean something else doesn't get covered? I mean, what What's going to be so the first it, thing? The first things to go will probably be, um, a, you know, streaming services or maybe a Spotify, you know, premium subscription. We've never been a cable household like many millennials. It's just not worth the expense to us. Um, more than likely, it'll look like me seeking additional employment. I work part time for the time being. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at what comes in is just that number's going to have to go up. Um, and so, then. So let me get this straight. With the student loans, when they come back online, that means you will cut some entertainment. I mean, what can we call streaming services entertainment, Spotify? But then you might have to get us another job. Yes, uh, depending on when I do my application, which of the programs, repayment programs they select, um, I will have to, yeah, bring in more income. Do you, and does your wife, do y'all have health care, health insurance? We, we do. My wife is a teacher, actually a first-year teacher, so uh, we'll, we'll have to be buying a lot less classroom supplies. Frankly, we'll have to invest less money in uh some of the things that we simply believe are important, like mutual aid and uh, building the classroom library. So you have the student loan debt. Does your wife have the student loan debt as well? She does not. So that is a, a huge privilege in our household that she was able to graduate from undergrad and master's debt free um, with family support, which is a situation that I just didn't have. Mm -hmm. If someone said to you, just on a scale of one to 10, how your financial, managing your financial situation correlates with your stress level, 10 being extremely high, where would you place it? I would say probably a 10. Really? Yes, it's certainly been a, a contributor to my stress level. And um, being, you know, someone who lives with PTSD, that starts to compound medical issues mm -hmm. and um, kind of a self-feeding cycle as far as the, the effects of being able to work um, while dealing with, you know, the symptoms of, of managing that. Jess, are you able to get the resources you need for PTSD? Or have you ever had to neglect seeking some type of service or resource for that just because you didn't have the money? I did. I had a period where my copay was just um, too much to go as often as I needed. And then at one point during the pandemic in 2020, when it all started, I turned 26. I lost, you know, coverage through my parent and uh, I didn't have health care. So seeking, you know, therapy and treatment was not an option. But now that I have insurance through my wife's job, I am currently in um, treatment and that's part of why I work part-time so that I can balance that kind of emotional expense. Speaking of balance, sounds like, and you, t you tell me, I wanted this to come in through your own words. It's not just something simple as, oh, Jess, just go get a better paying job. It has to be the right job because there are also other circumstances for you. Right. Certainly. I had a, a job that I considered a really well-paying job, but due to the really stressful circumstances and the kind of unpredictability of the schedule, um, I had to make a difficult choice to put my health first and to prioritize my well-being and to step back from that position, um, which was, was difficult because it was the first salary job I had had coming from a household where, um, you know, my parents were in blue collar positions. They weren't, you know, college educated um, folks until later when my mom pursued nursing. There just, you know, there's a reality that um, I had to accept mm -hmm. that, that, you know, to have a job that was salaried and did have benefits um, wasn't going to be worth the expense of me possibly not being here due to the stress. Mm. Are you all able to save money? Jess? No, we don't have savings. 
So for emergency, you know, you, you might have, you've heard this. Most Americans don't have $400 in case of an emergency. Right. I don't know very many people who have $400 set aside for that. When you and your wife have conversations about the finances, is that, what's, what's that like? Well, it's stressful. We do come from different backgrounds. I mentioned she had some more familial support through college and was able to start out with um, less debt and a little bit more of a leg up, whereas I'm starting out with um, student debt from undergrad as well as graduate school. And I graduated from graduate school in 2020 um, with a career path that had been basically ran into a brick wall. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations are, um, you know, tense. It's, it's one of those topics that we say, oh, we, we should talk about what we're going to do about this credit card or, um, you know, we've got to figure this out. And it feels so daunting at times um, it falls off the, the priority list and we kind of just make it, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And as things come up, um, we figure it out. I need new tires on my car. Well, I've got to get the tax return, you know, all the taxes done so that with that return, we can take care of some of these things. But it's like each time we think perhaps we've caught up, um, there's a, you know, an emergency or a vet visit or a doctor's visit that just takes priority. How many pets do you all have? We have seven. Uh, we have. Now, Jess, I love animals. <laughs> I do. I'd feed a, a stray rhinoceros if it came into my yard. I love pets. You have seven. Wow. We do. So we have one's a tarantula and she's by far the cheapest. <laughs> so cr crickets only run a few cents each and she eats one a month. So if you want a pet and you're struggling, tarantula is the way to go. Uh, two elderly dogs that mm -hmm. were um, rescues from family who wasn't able to take care of them. Mm -hmm. Four cats, uh, three of whom were strays that just wandered up and chose us they get you every they, time jess i'm here to tell they you do, they see us and they're like look at those two ladies they they love cats so we um also took in one that was uh family was unable to care for so that um those are our children <laughs> having having children is a conversation that is very much tied in with our conversation about finances sure. because it's um you know, something we'd like to do, but it feels so wildly unrealistic. So you're delaying point. starting a family because of finances. Is that what you're saying? Right. And because I want to be sure that I'm in the most healthy place possible to be a parent. Um, but it's a conversation that I, we can't even realistically think about what would that look like to have kids because just the cost of pursuing um, you know, an adoption is prohibitive. And then you look at the charts of what it costs to raise a child and mm -hmm. it just is staggering. Uh, I have a listener who says this conversation fills me with gratitude. Trust me, I've been there and it will get better. What do you make of that? I, I do have hope for that. I think, um, you know, as I sit here and think, oh my gosh, it's already March and my 2022 goal was to really just tighten up my budget and get get really good about planning. Um, I'm hopeful that I can take those steps and do my best in that regard and that I can pursue perhaps a career um, that'll, that could lead to some student loan forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I really wish that had been part of the State of the Union address that yeah. that, that you know heavy kind of lingering burden over my shoulder would would be um you know just taken care of wow jess thank you so much for participating in closer looks paycheck to paycheck series we're going to check back with you soon what's the tarantula's name matoka that was the indigenous name of mm -hmm. pocahontas yeah and yeah. um this was my wife's pet from before we started dating. So I, I keep my distance, but I do love her. <laughs>
I'm, I feel you on that, Jess. I, I, yeah, this, I, I, I'm with you on that. Jess, best of luck to you and your wife and the entire household. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We're going to check back with you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. And if you'd like to share how your household is managing finances or maybe it's quite challenging and you're not, drop us a line or two at paycheck at wabe.org or take our survey. It's quick, wabe.org slash paycheck. Best of luck to you, Jess. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. And our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.